You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I didn't realize it was going to be so shocking when I was working on it. It wasn't like I had a high concept. On the other hand, I realized that if I was outside of this and somebody was telling me, I just heard about this comic book, it's about the Holocaust, and it uses animals to tell the story, I'd go, oh, geez, we've reached some new lows here. Cartoonist and author Art Spiegelman. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. While there have been probably thousands of books about the Holocaust and Nazi Germany and the horrors of the concentration camps, few have been as powerful in the telling as Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Originally published in serialized comic strip form, Spiegelman brought it together in book form, first in 1986 with Volume 1 of the story, then in 1991 with Volume 2 of Mouse. And despite its unusual format, it is non-fiction. It is the story of the Holocaust as told to Art Spiegelman by his father, a Polish Jew who survived the concentration camps. And while it has variously been labeled history, uh, biography, autobiography, Spiegelman himself really doesn't know how to categorize it. But in 1992, Mouse won the Pulitzer Prize, the first graphic novel to win that prize. I first met Art Spiegelman in 1991, upon publication of Volume 2 of the Mouse Story. So here now, from 1991, Art Spiegelman. There's, there's kind of two tracks in the story, uh, me talking to my father and interviewing him about his past and the story of his past. The story in the present ends with uh, a break between me and my father, where I walk away from him very angry because um, he had uh, destroyed my mother's diaries of her wartime experiences. And book two picks up in the present with his uh, his second wife, Mala, having left him and him calling me to the Catskill. So there's a break in locale and in his life situation between the two parts. And in the, in the story that he's telling me, part one takes uh, place from about 1937 or so up until the gates of Auschwitz, and part two enters into the concentration camp universe. Was part two more difficult to do for you than part one? Yes, ultimately, yes, uh, for two reasons. One is that part one was a success, and I, like most artists, are prepared for just about anything but success, and uh, it actually set me back a year uh, trying to figure out what it meant to be successful at the expense of uh, so much death. Um, and part two was more difficult to visualize, as difficult as it was to set up. The reason I was hesitating is just that part one was difficult, too. It was all a drag. It was so difficult. Um, it took 13 years. The book is finally having its bar mitzvah now, and it, as it comes out, you know. Um, what it is is that uh, the first part, I had to figure out the voice and the way of telling, because there's so much about comics that haven't been... I mean, comics haven't been used to do this kind of work, exactly, and trying to figure out how to use the language delicately so that well, I wasn't doing uh, transgressing still doing serious work uh, was difficult. By the time I'd hit book two, I'd sort of figured out my laws of gravity, uh, the rules for the work, but um, but visualizing the concentration camp world was, was even more difficult than visualizing the earlier parts of the story, and, and that um, slowed me down in every possible sense. Is this probably called a novel or, is, or a comic? I mean, is it, is it, or is it a, a graphic novel or, or what is what is the? Those words are hard. I think I, I fit into the sui generis category, the uh, without category category, one of a kind, in that it's. 
It's called a comic, I suppose. Uh, I prefer comic, C-O-M-I-X, because it means to mix together. So then it's just mixing together words and pictures, the comics. Uh, the word comic implies humor, and although there's situational humor between me and my father, it's hardly a funny story. Um, Graphic novels are a word that I have trouble with because it's like graphics are respectable, novels are respectable, graphic novels, double respectability. Um, and to me, the fact that comics have a kind of taint to them is part of what makes them interesting to me. Um, whether it's fact or fiction, I don't know. I mean, I got the uh, Sunday Times front page book review describing it as a great work of literature and fiction and the Daily Review describing it as a great work of uh, biography and memoir. So that's in the same house. They're having problems figuring it out. And in 86, I got the uh, National Book Critics Circle nomination for Best Biography and the Joel M. Caviar Award for Best Jewish Fiction. So I think of it as nonfiction, although... Perhaps, uh, a, perhaps a docudrama? No, because that implies more license than I would take. On the other hand, it's hard to make a full-fledged claim for it as... Uh, as Reporting as taking a deposition because indeed there are mice heads after all. So it does slide away into a metaphor, but the metaphors tend to self-destruct and leave you with the reality that's behind the animal masks. And as a result, I think of it as nonfiction because if it was fiction, I could have probably done it in eight years instead of 13. I mean, I just didn't have the luxuries that somebody uh, shaping something ordinarily has. Uh, I felt very, um, very much... Uh, harnessed to my father's words. I was taking a deposition and had to shape it. And within that, I tried to shape it the way a novelist might shape uh, and structure his, uh, his matter. On the other hand, um, I didn't have the same room to maneuver in that, that uh, someone who's allowed to go after a greater truth at the expense of literal truths ordinarily has. Yeah, this is clearly you and your father and your respective, the other characters. These this is your story. This is this is not your fictionalized version of your story. No, what makes it fiction is it's shaped. Right. I mean, reality isn't. <laughs> so, or at least I haven't found the shape <laughs> but, yet. But the, but the 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 impact of seeing a topic. You, know, you were saying a moment ago that when you say the word comic, it, it it invokes in some people's minds something funny. And I think I think there there is a shock of seeing a topic like this treated in a comic because the the two seem so so diametrically opposite the impact is all the greater yeah well for me you know i didn't realize it was going to be so shocking when i was working on it it wasn't like i had a high concept like i have a great idea we'll do an opera about the holocaust i know i'll learn how to write an opera now I just, it's just i was drawing comics from the time i was in vitro and at this point it seemed um, I was using comics to deal with personal matters and stories even before I started this work, and it was just a logical outgrowth of my own approach to my medium to work inside it and, and think things through with comics. On the other hand, I realized that if I was outside of this and somebody was telling me, I just heard about this comic book, it's about the Holocaust, and it uses animals to tell the story, I'd go, oh, geez, we've reached some new lows here, you know? So... Um, does that's fact, from the outside. Does the fact that it works and that it's very successful surprise you? Yes, its success surprises me, not the fact that it works. I worked very hard to make it work. But the fact that it's successful is sort of an interesting perk that comes along now. After this short break, Art Spiegelman describes how the Holocaust shaped his life. Now back to my 1991 conversation with Art Spiegelman. How is it that you have to deal with what 
your parents went through? How is how is it? I mean, that's not your life, but clearly you're affected by it. I suppose, but then I find the question a little bit off-center because I believe that everybody has to deal with it, what their parents went through, and it's just that what my parents went through happened to be more extreme in its uh, shape and contours. That uh, There is a tendency, especially in America, to be ahistorical, like nothing that happened more than 10 minutes ago is very important. But in a way, what your parents went through did happen 10 minutes ago, and what you're going through has broader implications than what your daily life would imply. And to try to narrow it all down into just some kind of um, get up in the morning, brush your teeth, rush to work, whatever, life is uh, actually a delusion. And, well, maybe because of my parents' specific extreme situation of having gone through the death camps, I was forced to understand that at an earlier age than some other people might. There are so many people today who's, who seem to assume that, hey, you should be all right, you should have no trouble at all, I mean, it didn't, you know, it didn't happen to you, it's not your problem. Yeah, and in a sense, it didn't happen to me, and it's not my problem, which is why, you know, I'm a kid who grew up reading mad comics and uh, watching television, you know, it's not, I, I don't want it laid on me that I'm just carrying around this burden, you know, and it's this horrible thing. On the other hand, I'm carrying around this burden, and it's this horrible thing. Um, it's just, both things are true, and for me, the reconciliation took place in a comic book. Were there parts that were particularly wrenching for you? We started to touch on this a moment ago, but were there parts that were just very, very difficult for you? And was there any time at which you said, I don't think I can go on with this? All of it was difficult, and I said that once a day. And I'm serious. Yeah. Um, the The main thing was that Doing this allowed me to develop the kind of professional deformations that journalists get, and that allowed me to look at it so that, on the one hand, it was all painful. On the other hand, I just, at a certain point, developed enough calluses to think of this. This is material. I'm just going in there and organizing material. And essentially what I was doing, of course, was taking my life and my parents' life and organizing it into nice, neat little boxes so I could take a look at it and find out what happened to them and what happened to me in a way that made sense. But nevertheless, it took the form of, this is a project, I've got to research the project. And that allowed me to do my readings without going crazy. It allowed me to listen to my father without going crazy. Um, and essentially, it allowed me to have a relationship with my father without going crazy. Because prior to the beginning of this book, I was kind of estranged from him. Uh, my mother was dead, and we just didn't get along. And then I found that by coming back as a a kind of journalist into my own home. I was actually able to sit there without catapulting out of my seat and running for the hills because he was driving me crazy again. Um, so essentially my relationship with my father consisted of being the interlocu interlocutor, is that how you pronounce it? Of being the questioner. Um, and uh, he was just grateful to have a son that was sitting around listening for a change instead of arguing. Did he need to be debriefed? Did he need someone to listen to what he had to say? That's interesting. I like the phrase. Yes, I believe in a way he did, and in a way he didn't, in the sense that um, he's, he had talked about it among his friends. Like, clearly, this wasn't the first time he was saying these things. But when I went back to question him, he, he hadn't been forthcoming when I was a kid. I mean, he was rather closed-mouthed about this in a way that my mother wasn't. My mother would kind of leak out little anecdotes. Um, my father would talk among his friends, and I knew enough Polish to hear something, but I never had a context or understanding of it. And when I finally went back and asked him as, no, as a young adult, it's as if he'd been waiting for me to ask. And at that point, we sat down and, and talked for eight years. 
perhaps he was shielding it? Did he think you were too young to to absorb it? Um, parents, maybe parents I think can be that way. Well, you know? perhaps I'm wondering. I mean, I don't know all his motives. I think that uh, one aspect of this probably also has to do with the fact that it was painful for him to talk about, and another was that he didn't think it would do any good. I mean, it wasn't like what do you need it for? You want to know? I'll tell you. But. Uh, some people who survived survived in order to bear witness. That's what allowed them to, to kind of keep themselves together. It was their mission. And in fact, some people who didn't survive, that was their mission. That's why the diaries and drawings that were found uh, littered around the ghettos and uh, camps of Europe um, are, are testaments to that. Uh, my father didn't survive to bear witness. He wasn't one of those. Uh, he didn't believe that that would change the world a bit. So he was going, well, that's the past, this is the present, now I've got to hustle and make my living in the present. Why were you so enraged at the end of the first book when you learned that your father had burned all your mother's material? Well, I found it one more murder among all the other murders because the destruction of memory is that. And I suppose among the mandates to... I mean, I try to figure out how the heck I ever got here. How did I ever do this particular book and why? And there's two sources mom and dad and uh, mom's part in this she kept this journal she kept it during the war lost it after the war reconstructed it and wrote her sensibilities and feelings and her responses to what she went through and indeed what she went through wasn't identical to my father's um and when I was a kid, I remember seeing these notebooks in Polish, and she would tell me that someday she would like she can't write, but she'd like me to see these, and maybe I could write something. Uh, and she encouraged my development as a writer and artist in a way that my father encouraged my development as a dentist. Um, first doctor, but then settling for dentist. Uh, his argument was, um, well, Artie, if uh, you should become a dentist, it's secure. And if you're a dentist, you can always draw your pictures at night. But if you're a cartoonist, you can never drill teeth at night. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, well, uh, so as a result... I found those notebooks very important, and when I needed them to find out that my father kind of had uh, gotten rid of them was was very painful. Incidentally, the part my father played in all this was inadvertent. It was um, when I was a kid, I liked comic books, and my father would buy me comic books that were cheaper than the ones I could get at the store because he could get used comic books. So this was an important thing to him. Like instead of spending ten cents on one comic book, he could get five. Uh, but as a result, he brought me much better comic books. He brought me the comics from before the uh, House and Senate hearings on comic books as a subversive influence on children uh, changed the nature of comic books. So I was getting, in 1958, the good comics from 1954, the ones that created juvenile delinquency. And uh, so I had a much richer heritage of comics to draw from when I got older. And, it, and those comics are the ones that in, indeed inspired me to become a cartoonist. And, in fact, if I look back on my childhood, one of the warmest memories I have is looking forward to these comics that he would bring me. So that's really in a relationship that never really clicked. Like, we just never were able to bridge the, the gulf of uh, geography and generations and experience that were actually further polar, well, further apart than even most fathers and sons. Uh, that was something I can kind of look back on with some kind of real warmth. And uh, so probably all of these are factors in, in making Mouse. Art Spiegelman celebrated his 74th birthday last month. Just a few weeks earlier, Mouse became the number one bestseller on Amazon after a school board in Tennessee banned Mouse from the school library 
and touched off a national firestorm of controversy. And you can find easy Amazon links to Art Spiegelman's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, don't miss my interviews with two other well-known and influential cartoonists, my 1994 conversation with one of the geniuses behind Mad Magazine, Dick DiPartolo. People will remember or say, oh, when I was down in the dumps, I would go through my Mad collection. Or when I was overseas, my, my family sent me Mad. I felt like I was in touch with what was happening back in the States. It just thrills me that people have a, a warm affection for Mad. And my 1991 interview with the man who was Marvel Comics, the great Stan Lee. At a party, they see me, they push past Dan Quayle and Steven <laughs> Spielberg and Secretary Baker, and there's Stan Lee of Marvel. You know, I mean, <laughs> things have changed, obviously. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we approach the 40th anniversary of the death of comedian John Belushi, wow, 40 years, we'll revisit my 1990 interview with his widow, his high school sweetheart, Judith Jacqueline Belushi. I think most people who think of John, they don't even think of him as married. When I would be buying something with a credit card or whatever, they'd always they'd go, oh, are you John Belushi's sister? I kept thinking, why do they think that? But I think it's because that's just, they don't, that's just the first thought they'd have. I was clearly not his mother. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.